Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 2. If you'll join me there, we just briefly made our way into the second chapter last time that we were together. Uh, the first four verses of chapter 2 uh, reminded us that we've now come to the point after the time of Saul's death. So King Saul has now been dethroned uh, specifically by God himself, sovereignly allowing Saul to be killed in battle. And as the result of that, now after a 10-year span of David having been anointed as the next king of Israel as the result of God's rejection of Saul's reign, and David in a time of wilderness wandering, uh, being persecuted, being hassled by Saul, attempts of taking his life, struggling to get by in the wilderness year after year, uh, struggling in many ways, but yet God in the midst of that time, those 10 years developing David's character, preparing him to be able to handle the threat and to be the type of the king God wants him to be. We now come into 2 Samuel and we begin to see David's ascension to the throne. We're told at the beginning of chapter 2 that David had inquired of the Lord now that Saul had died whether uh, he should go up to one of the cities in Judah. God confirmed that he should. Uh, told him to go to Hebron which was the prominent city there in the southern area of Judah. And it tells us that as David uh, went up with the men that were with him, they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. In verse 4, this is sort of the turning point as we now come to it, says, Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So at this time, a, a second anointing, if you would, a, a confirmation of David's anointing, the Lord had already anointed him through Samuel uh, back when he was a teenager as he received that anointing oil upon his head and the call of God was put upon his life. But now this is the confirmation of the call of God. Uh, and now he's publicly anointed and recognized as the king, but notice only recognized as the king over the house of Judah at this point, not the entire nation. And we'll see more of this as we go on this evening. Let's pick up in verse 8. This is where we left off. It tells us after David is now anointed the king there in the area of Hebron, just over the southern part of Judah, it says, verse 8, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, remember Abner was the general, and it seems sort of the chief of, of the bodyguard detail of King Saul. We've seen him before. Abner, as the result of these events, Saul and his sons dying, Jonathan and the other sons, it says, he took now Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim. So somehow, we're not told, one of Saul's sons is spared in this fierce battle with the Philistines in which Saul was killed, Jonathan was killed, some of the other sons were put to death as well, but somehow one of the sons escapes from the battle, Ishbosheth, and we're told that Abner now, Saul's general, uh, it seems really wanting to just use Ishbosheth, we'll see, is sort of like a puppet king. You know, a lot of times, sometimes if a uh, leader or a dictator is dethroned, what will happen is the military still that was behind that prior dictator or leader will a lot of times find a way to still try and retain control in a governmental way. And this is really what we'll see Abner is going to do. Abner says, takes uh, Ishbosheth, one of the sons of Saul, and kind of like a puppet king, he's going to set him up now. It says he made, verse 9, Ishbosheth king 
over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned not long, notice, but for a time of two years. So at this point, really the kingdom is, you sort of have a divided kingdom already. Now, ultimately, uh, this obviously will take place to a greater degree uh, after the time of Solomon's reign, where the, where the nation will be long-term divided. But here, as the initial rightful king, David, comes to the place of rulership, right away, notice the immediate response to that. As soon as the rightful king, David, begins to reign in a partial manner, there's resistance right away to the rightful reign of the proper king that God intends. We're told that Abner props up like a figurehead Ishbosheth, and interestingly enough, the greater part of Israel actually for the first two years, we're told here uh, of Ishbosheth's reign, continues to follow the, the house of Saul. So David only has a partial reign at this point, uh, and Ishbosheth is propped up by Abner there over the greater part of Israel in the north. It says, verse 10, only the house of Judah followed David. And the time of, it says, David was king in Hebron, that is alone in the south, over Judah, was seven years and six months. Now, I look at this and I think, what a fitting picture, as I said. As soon as the rightful king, that's David, God's king, the anointed proper ruler over Israel, as soon as the rightful king begins to take some rulership and reign and be established in his rulership, right away there's human resistance to that. And I think, what a fitting picture, because this is so often true of exactly what happens in our lives spiritually. You know, we come to Christ and we accept him as Lord and Savior. And we recognize that Jesus is the rightful king. And we recognize that Jesus should be the one that is reigning on our heart and ruling over the territory of our lives and, and have complete control. But I don't know about you, the day that I surrendered to Christ, I meant it with the fullest sense of all that was within me, but yet I found that right away, the fleshly part of me, the old nature, like the old reign of Saul that existed there for many years, right away there started to be this resistance for rulership within. And as soon as Jesus was enthroned in my heart, right away there was this fleshly human resistance process that took place where my flesh and my old nature, my old life was still wanting to hold on to areas of my life and still be in control. And so there became this resistance that goes on. And, 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 and this is something I think that happens in all of our lives. The flesh is always going to work in opposition to God's rightful rule within us on the throne of our heart. And I think this is pictured in some ways by what we see happening now through the fleshly efforts of resistance of David's proper rulership, even as happens in our lives internally. Take notice as well, it tells us here that the time that David, verse 11, was king in Hebron over the house of Judah lasted for seven years and six months. Now, I don't know about you, again, let's just think backwards for a moment. After how long? Ten years. After ten years of David waiting to experience the, the calling of God and become the king of Israel as he was intended to be, David now, after ten years, things start to click 
it starts to happen. He's now recognized in Judah, but yet it doesn't happen all at once. He's forced to wait in some senses, we'll see, for another seven and a half years after already waiting 10 years to completely experience the full rulership over the territory that God wanted him to experience. It, it was sort of a, a, a progressive work of God. And oftentimes God does work in progressive steps and God keeps us waiting. You know, we, we talk about in a physical sense, weight training and, and we understand the idea of that is, is as we strain and go through repetitions, weight training, it develops us, it, it builds us you know, in our fitness, in our health. Well, well God kind of does the same spiritually in our lives. He kind of has this weight training process that he does in all of our lives where he teaches us how to wait upon the Lord and to not force God's agenda or push beyond God's timing. And, and, and sometimes it's difficult because after waiting 10 years, I mean, talk about character that had been developed within David, that he was still willing to wait another seven and a half years to have the complete experience of all that God had for him. And he was willing to let God do things in his timing. And as I said, David only reigned over a partial area his rulership was not total, but notice we don't see David here enforcing his rulership. We don't say David here saying, listen, the people of Hebron and Judah, I mean, they recognize what God wants. Well, everybody else needs to get their act together here. And he doesn't start sending out his mighty men to basically begin to go and force his rulership to be embraced by people who didn't want it. David instead, very patiently to his credit, lets God work in the hearts of the people he lets God work in the circumstances. He doesn't get hostile because of this puppet king or figurehead that's been set up by Abner trying to retain Saul's family and their rulership, though that was totally fleshly, outside of God's will and wrong. David does not here resist that. He just lets God continue to work in the hearts of people. He lets circumstances unfold over time to orchestrate the, the, the desire of further submission to him, which was in accordance with God's will. And David here continues to show incredible character in the sense that in the same way he did not strive to obtain the throne for those 10 years, David continues to have this attitude, Lord, you'll dethrone Saul and Lord, in your timing and in your way, as I continue to humble myself before you, the Bible says if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will lift us up in due time. And so David here, in this beautiful way, he just continues to let God work and he figures, oh, <laughs> I mean, it had to be quite depressing to see Saul dethroned and he's thinking with his men after 10 years, finally, 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 Lord, okay, it seems like it's happening. And then all of a sudden, what's going on? There's another king now that's been established and all of the majority of Israel is now following him and as a result of Abner, I mean, that must have been a little bit disheartening. But again, David's mentality was, Lord, you dealt with Saul. You've dealt with everything else and Lord, you'll deal with that too. I don't know how you're going to deal with it, but in your timing and in your way, you'll remove the obstacles. You'll open the doors that need to be opened and, and you'll work in the hearts of people and God, when they're ready to embrace me, they'll embrace me. When they're ready to recognize what you want and what your will is, then they'll recognize it. And here David shows tremendous example of just waiting upon the Lord, letting God work and boy, that's a hard thing to do to recognize that God is in control and, and, and not to, to just you know, say we believe it in faith, but to recognize it, listen, by our actions, 
by truly keeping our hands off. It's easy to say, oh, I'm going to wait upon the Lord and I believe God will do it. It's a whole other thing to live that way and really not to strive and to truly keep our hands off in matters and just pray and let God work and let his timing unfold and, and let God orchestrate the circumstances that need to happen. And that's what God will do. We'll see ultimately. God will begin to just orchestrate circumstances to remove Ishbosheth, to deal with Abner and ultimately to bring David to a place where the entire nation comes under his rulership properly. Again, so David here, notice he's only reigning over those who desire him to reign over them he's not forcing anyone to be in submission to him he patiently allows things to unfold because he wants people to have a willingness to submit to his authority and his rulership over their life and can i just say that is a beautiful picture here in david of the lord jesus christ the one greater than David, the son of David, Jesus. Because in the same way, Jesus at times, you know, though he is the rightful ruler over all of humanity, and listen, one day he's going to come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus rightfully has rulership over everything right now. But right now we don't see Everything and everyone in submission to Jesus has the rightful king over this earth. Everyone should be submitting to Jesus, but we don't see this world yet as it will be when Jesus returns. Not everyone is submitting to Jesus. In fact, quite sadly, there's only a very small remnant on this planet that's living in submission to Jesus, just like there was a small remnant living in submission to David initially until a time came when ultimately he was completely enthroned. And David, as I said, he only reigned over those who wanted to be ruled over by him and can i just say that's exactly how jesus is king of kings lord of lords the rightful ruler and yet jesus will not force anyone to follow him to submit to him or to have his rulership over their life he only rules over those who want to be ruled over he allows the will to be involved and jesus will even much to our difficulty sometimes he will patiently let people go through circumstances and he'll let timing take place and he will wait people out and wrestle and let people struggle to the place that they come to where they willingly then say, I want you as my king. I want you to rule over my life. Jesus won't twist anybody's arm to rule over them. It's astonishing to me, as powerful and as almighty as he is, that he willingly lets it, but, but like David, he will not reign over or rule over anyone who does not want to be ruled over or, or to be reigned over by him. He wants us to submit to him, to willingly embrace his reign. And to our, in all of our lives, that's what he's looking for. And, and by the grace of God, we hope as his people that to greater and greater degrees, you know, I hope you are continuously praying, Lord, dethrone me more and more, Lord. Take more territory. Lord, you, you deserve complete rulership over my heart. And yet, Lord, I still find at times there are little areas where I, I'm trying to still take control of the throne again. And Lord, it's not what I wanted. I want you to rule over me. I'm reading a book again I've read before in the past. It's called Christ Indwelling and Enthroned. And the whole premise of the book, if you want to save your time not reading a book, is the title. Most books are that way. I find you, I read the title. And I'm like, I got the idea there, you know. Christ indwelling and enthroned. Christ is indwelling anyone who's a Christian. If you're a Christian, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he indwells you. By his spirit, Jesus is in you, Christ in you, the Bible says. 
The question is, he's indwelling, but is he enthroned? He is indwelling, but is he enthroned? Have you enthroned him in your heart? Because that's a willingness to do that, to allow him to be Lord, to allow him to rule within us. And I think in some ways this is pictured here by exactly what's taking place. So David, waiting out this time period, verse 12 tells us, Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out to Mahanim to Gibeon. And very interesting, reigning in Mahanim. Mahanim is outside of the territory of Israel. Uh, because again, when you're doing things outside of God's will, you've got to go outside of God's boundaries uh, when you're doing things that aren't in line with God. So again, he brings them to Mahanim. This is the place of his throne outside of the boundaries of God because this is outside of the will of God. That's how things like this work. Verse 13, And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, they went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and one on the other side of the pool. So you have sort of David and his mighty men, his military soldiers who rallied around him, become his loyal followers and, and, and comrades, the 600 men. And now we have Abner, Saul's military general, and all the men who are still a part of that military force. And they meet now at this historical location, this pool of Gibeon. It was a known spot. They, they sit down, one army on both sides, sort of facing off here. And what they're going to do is basically do something what might be referred to in the ancient culture typically as representative combat. Where, where rather than both armies just engaging in conflict, again, uh, in this day, you know, blood sport and watching arena fighting, this was something that uh, even the Romans certainly found great thrill in. In the ancient culture, this was a common practice. So this is what's going to happen now. Notice verse 14, Abner, the general of Saul's men, said to Joab, and remember Joab was sort of David's chief military guy, said, let the young men now arise and compete before us. Let's have a little, a little competition here, a, you know, ancient version of you know, MMA, cage fighting, with lots of guys in the same cage, going at it all at the same time. And this is going to be quite a, a bloody experience here, a dozen men from both sides. And Joab said, let them arise. Let, let's do this. Rather than just engaging in conflict and a bunch of bloodshed, let's let, let's let some of your best men Take on some of our best men and see what happens. So they arose, verse 15, went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. So they each kind of take 12 representative men. So this is kind of like, okay, it's your Navy SEALs versus our Green Beret. And, and, and let's let it... A dozen seals and a dozen green beret men just let's let them just fight it out and the rest of us will just watch and again there's this whole prideful you know enjoyment of who's going to win in the battle as 12 representative men engage in combat as sort of a show a sport uh, competing before them so look what happens verse 16 it says each one is the 12 on 12 engaged each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So, rather than anyone really succeeding, as this conflict takes place, all these men welled up in pride, as soon as they engage, each one does the same thing impulsively. They grab the other by the head and just thrust their sword right into the side here, and all 24 of them die on the spot, 
from a mortal sword wound uh, in this moment. And again, you look at this and you think, what an absolute waste of life and was driven really by just, again, incredible pride. And, and I look at this and the, the thought that comes to my mind is, you know, oftentimes in prideful conflicts like what you see happening here, you know, whenever there are prideful conflicts, there's no winners. Everybody ends up just being a loser. <laughs> That's usually what happens. When people are welled up in pride and because of their pride, they engage and become, you know, again, in some way against one another. Usually whenever there's a prideful conflict, everyone gets hurt. Nobody wins. Everybody loses. And just like in this situation, nothing was resolved here. And not only was nothing resolved, often it just creates more antagonism and greater levels of attacks just result afterwards. And that's often what happens in prideful conflicts. Because notice, look at the very next verse, verse 17. After they all watch this, everyone now sees the bloodshed. Hey, you killed 12 of our guys. Well, you killed 12 of our guys. And all of a sudden, nothing's resolved and things escalate. So there was a fierce battle that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So David's men, again, uh, become hardened soldiers. They, they had the greater upper hand in this battle that began to take place. Verse 18, now there were three sons of Zariah, and they were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet afoot as a wild gazelle. So you know exactly what that is, right? That just meant they could run really fast is what that means. So Asahel pursued after Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Now, again, he's an ambitious man. And because he can run quickly, he's thinking to himself, hey, if I can take out Abner, the general of Saul's army, then I can eliminate the, you know, the, the, the one who's the power behind the throne and I'll be greatly rewarded. And again, I, I, I'll be very, you know, well recognized. And no doubt the ambition within him as a man is thinking, I want to be the one to kill their general. So he's chasing now in hot pursuit and he can outrun anyone else because he runs like a gazelle. So he can outrun anyone else in pursuit of Abner as they're now retreating. And it says as he's pursuing, verse 20, that Abner looked behind him and said, are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, verse 21, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. Now he could be saying, hey, listen, first of all, don't take on me. That's not a good idea because you're not a trained military person who is a combatant as I am with great experience. If you want somebody's armor, go beat up a little kid. <laughs> go take on a young man and steal his armor and make yourself feel good about yourself. Or he could be saying, listen, if you're going to come after me, I wouldn't recognize you come, recommend you come in that vulnerable condition. You might want to stop, go get some armor on first and get yourself adequately prepared because uh, you're putting your life at risk. So you want to make sure you're pretty well armored before you come after me. Either way, he's encouraging him. Listen, turn aside. What do you think you're doing? But verse 21, Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner, verse 22, again said to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? He said, what are you doing, man? Just give up on it, he's saying. Just turn aside. Stop striving forward. How then, he says, could I face your brother Joab? If I kill you, then I'm going to have to face your brother for putting you to death. 
Verse 23, however, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with, notice, the blunt end, not the sharp end, the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. And so it was as many came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, stood still. So at some point, uh, multiple times here, Abner keeps saying, man, give it up. Stop chasing after me. This, this is not necessary. It's not, but, but Asahel was determined. He was ambitious. He wanted to destroy Abner and have the accolades and the reward of that. And he's striving forward. He keeps saying, turn aside, man, turn aside. Multiple times, don't stop, just cut it out, turn aside. And then there's going to be a bigger problem that needs to take place here. And eventually Abner, a hardened combatant, just stops at one point and he just throws back the blunt end of his spear. Now, possibly all he was trying to do is maybe just nail him in the gut and just knock the wind out of the guy to slow him down and to get him to stop his pursuit. Or it could be that he was just that well trained that with the blunt end of the spear and the strength he had as a as a trained warrior, he just puts the blunt end of the spear back, goes right into his stomach and right throughout the back of him and just pierces him and puts him to death here. And I look at this and I think, boy, what a sad ending to being overly ambitious and not turning aside when sometimes maybe you should have took the warning and did that. And I look at this story here and I think, boy, sometimes, just like us, Asahel, that same spirit within us, for whatever good intention or great idea we have, sometimes we can be very ambitious and we're striving forward after something and we want to conquer something or do something or accomplish something and the pride within us wants to make it happen because you know we want to accomplish some great thing and then the result is of our ambition and our pushing and our striving forward to obtain the result is tremendous personal loss and just like this Sometimes we have to beware, ladies and gentlemen, of refusing to turn aside when maybe that's the thing that we should do. Maybe we get in hot pursuit of something and we're going after something and sovereignly God is creating opportunities and he keeps saying to us, take the exit ramp, take the exit ramp, turn aside. Don't do that. And, you know, and, and God's gracious to do that. He sends warning shots across our bow and, and maybe multiple times we keep hearing, look, beware, turn aside, you shouldn't do this. And if we just keep pushing, pushing, and like this, verse 23, if we refuse to turn aside and we keep pressing forward, sometimes it ends up in tremendous personal loss. Tremendous personal loss. Proverbs 22, 3 says, The prudent man foresees evil ahead and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Again, words of wisdom. Sometimes if you see, look, that if I keep pressing in that direction, it doesn't look like it's going to end up, in, but if you just press on and plow through anyway, sometimes here something very tragic happens and there's great loss in our lives like was the case here. So as he falls down dead, as the men were coming up behind him who couldn't run quite as fast as him, they now see him laying there dead and they're thinking, oh no, Joab's brother has just been put to death now. And Joab was going to be incredibly angry about this. We'll see as time goes on. So Joab, verse 24, and Abishai, the two brothers, they pursued Abner. Now their brother's dead. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. 
Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner. They kind of come back as reinforcements, becoming a unit, and took their stand up on top of a hill. So they think they have advantage by being higher up now. And then Abner called down to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? So at this point, I mean, an all-out civil war is about to just implode because of a few angry people and personalities. And all of a sudden, this thing, it's like gasoline on a fire now. And so in the midst of this, Abner, conveniently enough because he's losing the battle with his troops, gets to a high point and he says, listen, how long, he says, should the sword devour? He's saying this is going to become horrific, he says, and there's going to be a bitter latter end if you don't tell your people to stop pursuing us. This is going to become an all-out civil war with great loss of life. And again, civil wars, let me just say too, especially among God's people, I mean, that's never productive, never productive. And sadly, God's people can kind of get into civil wars sometimes. And the sooner people retreat in humility, the better. Because there's less hurt people and less wounds and less issues and less complications long term here. So verse 17, Joab wisely refrains from this word of caution in this moment at least here he'll not do too well long term he says as god lives verse 17 unless you had spoken surely then by morning the people would have given up pursuing their brethren so joab blew a trumpet all the people stood still and did not pursue israel anymore nor did they fight any more you know perhaps sometimes Something like that could even just be a word of the Lord in our life. They didn't pursue and they didn't fight any more. You know, maybe there's an antagonistic situation or conflict in some relationship situation. And here's the truth of the matter. Sometimes the reason why those conflicts continue is because someone keeps pursuing it. Somebody keeps pursuing it. The Bible says where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And sometimes God says, stop picking the scab. Stop pursuing it. Stop fighting. I found an amazing thing. If I stop talking, my wife and I stop arguing sometimes. Now, that was theoretical. I mean, that was completely theoretical. I mean, it might have happened one time back in the late 90s or something like that. But it's amazing how when one person is willing to just stop pursuing you know, the conflict, how an amazing cessation of the anger and the animosity can begin to take place. So verse 29, Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, went through all Bithron, and came to Mahanim. So they returned back to home base. And Joab returned from pursuing Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Asahel. So David's men lost 20 soldiers that day. The servants of David had struck down, however, of Benjamin and Abner, Abner's men, 360 men who died. And then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which is in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night and they came to Hebron at daybreak. So they pull back, the battle ceases. But here's the problem. In Joab's heart, the issue's not over. And outwardly, he pulled back and he stopped doing the things that he was doing in conflict. But inwardly, 
Joab is going to put down deep roots of bitterness and he's going to nurse a grudge that is ultimately going to cause tremendous issues in the near future. And, and this can be a real danger because, listen, it's real easy sometimes to outwardly conform to what's right. But if we don't deal with what's going on inwardly in our heart, and we nurse a grudge or let a root of bitterness go down. Well, a root of bitterness, the Bible says, can spring up and defile many. And if we just nurse that in, really, it's only a matter of time until we then seek some form of revenge. And this is what we'll see Joab will do long term. Well, look how chapter 3 opens up. It says, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now, I love this picture here in verse 1. It describes historically something that was happening. The struggle between if you would, two thrones or, or, or two individuals who were supposed to be in places of rulership and how there was a struggle for rulership. And it says it was a long war and a long war consists of multiple battles, right? And it says here as this wrestling for who would be in authority and who would rule and be in control went on between these two houses. I love verse one as it says, David the rightful ruler, grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. You know, I remember when I read that years and years ago, the first time I read it, I thought to myself, man, what an incredible picture of the spiritual life. That there's this long war, right? But between the flesh and the spirit of God that goes on inside of us. The Bible says that you know the flesh lusts after the spirit and the spirit after the flesh. These two are, are contrary. They're in conflict. And I don't know about you, but I found that since the day I got saved, there's been this long war that's been going on inside of me. Because prior to that, my flesh just ruled. My sinful nature, my old man, just ruled and reigned. So the Bible you know, tells us that before we're saved, you know, the only thing that is in control in our life is our flesh. And we're spiritually dead. It's been said before, I believe it was Spurgeon said, dead men don't wrestle. So if you're spiritually dead, there's nothing to wrestle with. Because the Spirit of God is not in there trying to wrestle for control, rightful control of the Lord upon the throne of our heart and the Spirit of God reigning over our life in the way we're supposed to live by God's design. But once you get saved and the Holy Spirit invades your life and Jesus is to be the rightful ruler on the throne of your heart, now this, this if you would, long war transpires where there's this continuous process of many battles and there's this battle of the flesh raging against the spirit and the spirit wrestling against the flesh. And just like here in this picture, the, the ultimate goal, however, is that Jesus or the spirit would grow stronger and stronger and that the control of my flesh in my life, my sin nature, would grow weaker and weaker. That's the intended purpose. Yeah, there's going to be a battle. Yes, the wrestling is normal. There's ongoing conflict. But gradually, may the rulership of Christ, may the rulership of the Holy Spirit of God grow stronger and stronger through those battles and may our flesh grow weaker and weaker in its grip and its control over our lives even as happened here. Well, verse 2 says, during this time as well, sons were born to David in Hebron. And then the Bible lists a few of David's sons. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second son was Chiliab by Abigail. The third, Absalom 
the son of Meacha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shepatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Eglah. And these were the sons born to David while in Hebron. So you read that list, you say, okay, well, that's interesting. David you know, had six, seven, half a dozen sons or whatever there. Well, the problem is, I hope you pick up on that, that each one was from a different woman. So what the Bible, what the Bible is very honestly telling us here is, yes, David was having sons, but he also was marrying multiple wives. At this point here, as these sons are mentioned here, you ultimately have six different sons from six different women. Now, now that would be that David at this point has already acquired to himself seven wives. Of course, a direct violation of not only God's original design from Genesis chapter 2 that one man and one woman together would live in a monogamous lifelong relationship becoming one flesh but even more than that David here though he is God's man and a follower of God demonstrates not only his violation of God's design of marriage but even more he's violating Deuteronomy 17 which said that kings specifically were not to multiply wives and David is directly violating that. Again, showing us even the best of men are men at best. And this was a real weakness, an area of sin in David's life. David was a man of tremendous passion. And even here, David's got half a dozen wives. And later on, we're going to see in this book, even with half a dozen wives, he still ends up in an adulterous affair with Bathsheba because he couldn't regulate his passions as a man. He wasn't able to control his passions. He had a real weakness for women. And this, in many ways, is what led to David's downfall. As a ruler, as a man, many times this can be a great weakness, a chink in the armor of really incredible men. And yet this becomes a, a real problem in, in David's life here. And the Bible is very honest about David's errors and his, his mistakes. In some ways, however, you know, despite the fact that it is wrong, what a tremendous encouragement that, to show you that God uses imperfect people. <laughs> I mean, if anybody had a reason to be written off by God, I mean, look what David's doing already early in his reign making mistakes, violating the, the word of God, but yet God somehow graciously still worked through his life despite those things. Verse 6 says, Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, notice that Abner, all the while the general, was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Now wait a minute, I thought he propped up Ishbosheth as the king. Uh, I thought Ishbosheth was the king. Why is Abner the general? strengthening his hold on the house of Saul because Abner has had unhealthy ulterior motives from day one. This is Abner. Abner has always been working behind the scenes and everything that Abner did had a selfish personal agenda. And notice, whenever people have selfish personal agendas, it will always be revealed in time by their actions. And here we see his ulterior motives. Abner was doing the things he was, acting like, oh yeah, Ishbosheth, let him be the king, when the reality was, all the while, there was this ulterior motive going on inside of him. He had a selfish, underlying agenda, wanted his own personal thing, and here, notice, it, it just always comes out in time. It, it's like a sponge. 
You know, you don't know what's in a sponge until you squeeze it. When you squeeze it, then you think, what's in there, milk or water or juice? Or, and, but when you squeeze it, it and, and this is what happens. As situations happen, there was war, there was conflict, as circumstances were tense, little by little it started becoming obvious, wait a minute, Abner doesn't care an ounce about Ishbosheth. He wants the throne for himself. He's trying to take hold of things for himself. He had an authority issue and an agenda, and it always comes out in time. And here he's trying to strengthen his hold on the house of Saul. Verse 7, look, as God, as I said, orchestrates circumstances. Remember I said David waited patiently. Watch what God starts to do now. Verse 7, and Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth, his son, the king, said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, whether that's true, it could have happened, or whether that's just an accusation, Ishbosheth feels a little emboldened. Maybe he's feeling even a little insecure and threatened because he sees what Abner's doing. And let me just say, whenever you're outside of God's will, which Ishbosheth was, he wasn't supposed to be the king, he was doing something outside of God's will, you will always be constantly insecure. When you're doing something that God's not led you to do, there'll be constant insecurity. And people who are doing things outside of God's intention or will for their life, they'll always be very insecure people. They'll, they'll be threatened by the most petty things. They'll constantly be territorial and, and be worried about control. And are you trying to take control away from me? And what are you doing? Are you trying to push me out? And this is him. He's very insecure. So he's now challenging it, it, challenging Abner Ishbosheth saying wait a minute I heard you went in you, you slept with one of my father's concubines now what are you doing understand in that day culturally this was a practice that was done if you wanted to prove your authority if you conquered a king or you usurped the throne away from an existing king if you slept with one of his wives or his concubines that was basically an ancient way of demonstrating that you have taken over control and establishing your authority. So this was a cultural thing. Now, whether he did this purposely as he was trying to strengthen his hold, and it's true, the accusation, or whether it's just an accusation alone, it doesn't fare too well with somebody who's a rough and tumble guy like Abner, who can use the blunt end of a spear to stick through somebody's stomach and out their back to kill them. So at this point, Abner, it says, became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Who do you think you're talking to, puppet king? He says, Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? So he says, Who do you think you are, buddy? You're just a puppet king. You wouldn't even have a throne if I didn't give it. And he says, you're accusing me of some fault with this woman who was your father's concubine? Verse 9, he's greatly angry. He then says, may God do so to Abner and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba from north to all the way south, he says. And notice, he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. At this point, Ishbosheth is shaking in his boots now because he realized not only can this guy kill me, he just said to him, listen, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm through with you. In fact, I'm the one in control here anyway. I'm going to go transfer the whole kingdom 
over to David from north to south and I have the power and the influence to do it. And he threatens now to take his loyalty, which he will do, and to bring it to David. He's so angry and very quickly, notice how quickly his loyalty changes. And now he's going to, as it says here, do for David as the Lord swore to him to transfer the kingdom, we'll see. Abner will do this. He will take it and transfer it over to David in our verses ahead. I want you to take note, however, verse 9, because you look at this and you think, boy, okay, well, that's good. Like, you know, I mean, Abner's, you know, kind of a, a, an unhealthy guy, but he's starting to show a little repentance now. I mean, now he's ready to take the kingdom and he's ready to go give it to David and he's going to help in the process and he's going to, okay, he's humble and repentant. He's doing the right thing. Well, listen, verse 9, he says, I'm going to do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. What that tells us is this, is Abner has known all along what's the right thing to do. And he's been resisting what's right for years and years, suppressing the truth, resisting what was right. He is an individual Abner who is so filled with selfish agenda, all he wants to do is work every system he can to just ultimately get what's best for Abner. That's all he's thinking about, really. And here, it says, he says here, I'm going to do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. This is a picture of how sometimes, like Abner, we can know what is the right thing to do, and yet, sadly, we can resist it. We can quench the truth. We can quench what the Spirit of God is telling us. And for selfish reasons, that's why Abner did it, for selfish reasons, we can resist what we know is right. And can I encourage you this evening? If you know what the Lord's will is and you're resisting it, stop. Stop. I don't care how long you've been doing it. I don't care how many years you've been doing it. If you clearly know in your conscience you have light, you have the truth of the word of God, the Holy Spirit is testifying to you, and you know what is right, what God intends, what God's will is in a situation, and yet you've been resisting it for some selfish reason, stop. Stop the insanity because it never works out good in the end. You're resisting what is true and what God wants. And this is what Abner's doing. But now Abner says, again, shows you how quick. He's, I'm done with you, how fickle he is. I'm taking the kingdom and I am bringing it to David. Verse 12, so Abner sent messengers on behalf of himself to David saying, whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. David, make a treaty with me. I'm ready. You know I'm the one with the influence. I'm going to bring all of Israel to you. And David said, are you joking me, you snake? No, he didn't say that. You'd think he would say that, wouldn't you? I mean, if I, if I was David, I'm not as godly as David. I would have said, do you, excuse me? You think I'm going to trust you to help in my campaign? I mean, you think I'm going to help believe that you're going to help me and not do something? But look at the incredible grace of David. David said, good. I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David, despite all that happened, take notice of this, he's not being stubborn. I mean, this is shocking to me. If anybody would have reason and justification to be really stubborn and angry and resistant, instead, David is willing to humbly reconcile with Abner for God's purposes and for the higher reasons of God, for God's purposes to come to pass, which is that God wanted David to reign over all of his people in Israel. 
And David knows this. So David, caring more about the will of God, caring more about the people of God, rather than his own personal preferences or, or his own you know, feelings that are going on or his own thoughts, I, I, this is such an incredible thing. David says, you know what? Yeah, I could be stubborn right now. I, I could put my stake in the ground, right? I could put my stake in the ground and say, I'm not working with you. I'm not going to have anything. To, and, and he could have a very stubborn, resistant attitude here, which we'll see is what Joab's, as I said, bitterness and hard attitude is towards Abner. As we get into the later part of the chapters, so you have to come back next time to see that. But David here is the exact opposite. Rather than be bitter and, and to be stubborn because of what has happened in the past. And there's some baggage in the past here. We've seen it already tonight. David instead says, you know what? Rather than delve into the baggage and go through the dirty laundry and make it make me stubborn and resistant, you know what? I'm willing to humble myself. If I'm willing to humble myself and, and do what's right so that I can see the purposes of God come to pass. And, and let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing more wonderful than somebody by the grace of God, and it takes the grace of God. I, I can't do it on my own. I, I assure you that, nor can you. When somebody by the grace of God is willing to, in humility, say, you know what? For the cause of Christ, for what's best for God's people, I, I, I'm going to do the right thing here. Because God's purposes, God's glory, God's preferences, God's will, God's best for everyone else is way more important than the satisfaction of my personal feelings or the fulfillment of some frustrations within me. God help us. Perhaps right now you, you find yourself in a situation like that or you're going to face something like that. Can I always encourage you, always ask what would glorify God and do that. Let's stand together. Let's pray. We'll pick up next time because we'll see, as I said, that unfortunately Joab, David's general, whose brother has been put to death by Abner, will have a completely different attitude and things will get quite messy as a result of his bitterness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories in the book of Second Samuel that you, by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us. Lord, history. Lord, but yet at the same time, your word living and powerful and lessons that we can glean for our own lives. Help us, Lord. Help us tonight to, Lord, turn aside from anything maybe we're pursuing that's not right or unhealthy. Stop before we need to, Lord, and, and, and Lord, pull back before we press into something that could be quite damaging. And Lord, if we know as well what is right, help us. Help us, Lord, not to resist. Help us not to resist what we know is true and right, but to respond to it. If that means repenting, Lord, changing, whatever it takes, please help us to do such. And as we worship now, Lord, may your Holy Spirit work among us and give us grace to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.